0: Bring yourself back online.
2: No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world.
0: This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty.
1: Hello and welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast with the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson.
3: And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. (laughs)
1: Uh, each week we will break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions of this show, as well as occasionally chat with someone who has worked on Westworld itself. This week we have two interviews. We've got the great Shannon Woodward, who plays, um, Elsie, and then we'll have an interview with the director, Frank Toy, of the, um, of the episode Passenger. This is our last episode about Westworld. But we have a new series coming up a little later this summer uh, for the HBO series Sharp Objects, uh, which is based on the book by Gillian Flynn and directed by Jean-Marc Vallée and starring Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson. So if you want to join us for that, just keep this podcast in your feed and we will be discussing all the twists and turns of that particular uh, robot. It, that's also about a robot apocalypse, right, Richard? Sharp Objects? Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. No, the robots themselves are sharp and they're objects and thus are sharp objects
1: perfect can't yeah.
3: wait and it's actually a documentary about amy adams trying to figure out if she's a robot anyway it's complicated we'll get into it later
1: we'll dive all into it make sure that you know what's going on um this is we are recording this we saw the finale a little early so we're oh a w- what bit. a
3: what a brag <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i just want i just wanted everyone to to let everyone know that we've had some time to think about the finale oh yeah um, and, and
3: and we i think we've both watched the episode twice right
1: we, we both had to watch it twice yeah so, so.
3: If Don't feel like, dumb if you did if you didn't pick up on things we we picked up on. Um
1: Right. We studied is yeah. the point. Um and we might still get some stuff wrong. Um us um Never. definitely <laughs> Going to get some stuff <laughs> yeah. um but uh before we dive into that i want to do like one last thought experiment with you richard this is from uh listener abby uh and she was inspired by that conversation we had about like whether or not we would we would send a copy of ourselves to mars if it meant, meant like we died here on earth or something like that mm-hmm. um she says According to things that I've read, uh, and she has like a whole list of references at the bottom of this email, uh, and things I've been taught, human consciousness comes from spirit, for lack of a better word. That is, the physical body is like a radio receiving a signal, consciousness, that is transmitted from elsewhere. Spirit, your soul, divine consciousness, the all that is, etc. The brain physical body is not the source of that consciousness. One metaphor that makes sense to me is this. Imagine you're sitting on the edge of a swimming pool or other body of water. You, can, you only have your Feet in the water. This is a good representation of how your spirit or soul relates to your physical body. Your human experience is like your feet in the water. They feel wet, they feel the temperature of the water, etc., but the larger part of you is having a different experience. You can choose to put more of yourself in the water. You could take your feet out. Putting more of yourself into the water means more of your spirit or soul's attention is on your physical experience. Removing your feet means you are less focused on your physical body, but more focused on the non physical. This could be a coma, out of body experience, near death experience, or death, which is a permanent exit from the that physical body after physical death, your spirit lives on to inhabit another body perhaps, or to exist in non-physical for a while. So the question is, is a digital copy of you still you? Um, And she goes on to say a lot more things. She says like her first thought is no, then maybe she's coming around to yes. Um, I, I think I might be coming around to your sort of initial reaction, Richard, to the Mars experiment, which is like, no copy is not you right i mean
3: we've seen yeah i mean
1: what do we learn from this episode did that like change your mind about anything well I don't
3: know. no not really because the whole yeah.
1: thing
3: with charlotte i was like but it wasn't actually charlotte in the other body um so i don't yeah i i i feel like it's a it's a copy you know it's not the same thing and yeah. If your, your consciousness is singular and you can recreate a version of it, but that still means potentially that one other, your original consciousness goes away. So what's the point? You know? Yeah. I don't know.
1: Um, all right. So, I mean, I, I, I would be endless, even though this, this podcast, this mini series on Westworld is going to end, I would be endlessly curious to hear what people think about, um, this idea. Cause there's a couple different like afterlife options presented in this uh particular episode. And I think it's worthwhile talking. Yeah, you know, there's been so much religious, um, Symbology, um, metaphor also in this season. I think it's definitely worth talking about, um, these, this digital immortality as an afterlife and which one we would choose and that sort of stuff to mm-hmm. make it, you know, I think Richard and I are both, um, atheists, but I think it's still worth, uh, some considering, right? So, um, I don't mean to speak to your spirituality, Richard. I apologize on this Westworld podcast. I'm All
3: a, right. a Mooney. <laughs>
1: Oh yes. I yeah. knew, actually I did know that yeah. about you. Right. Mo- right. Moody. You've been trying to convert me for a long time. I just
3: love big public weddings, you know. What can I say?
1: <laughs> All right. Uh so we open this episode with a sort of scene we've seen uh before, which is Dolores creating Bernard in the cradle. That's what this scene looks like to me. Um, or perhaps it's no, it definitely is because it's letterbox. So this is this is a repeat of Dolores in, in the cradle with Bernard. And, and what we find out is that she, it was her decision, I guess. I always thought this was Ford's call, but it was her decision to make the copy not exactly Arnold to make him different um so that uh because uh, you know she says something i mean uh, no one delivers like a kind of callous line with a smile like evan rachel would and i think she says like after all you didn't make it did you to arnold like because he died so she's like maybe this maybe if i improve this version he'll survive right so uh yeah so um and and she mo- she mentions that it's trial eleven thousand nine hundred and twenty seven. Just if you were curious, uh, how many how long Dolores spent refining this particular uh, copy?
3: Well, and and and, and long is relative in that world because yeah, computer speed is what it is. You know, it's um, true. But which we we get more into later in the episode.
1: Right. Um, so then we see, uh, three of our main characters sort of converging in the valley. We get Bernard is going there, um, you know, in his little white doom buggy. We get, uh, Dolores going there. We'll get to that in a second. And then William is already there, sort of like digging into his arm with a knife. Um, but before we see that, we see that Dolores, uh, is, is cuddling with Teddy, having a nice like post, post mortem cuddle. Uh, with her boyfriend and saying goodbye to james Marson as we all feel like we need to uh, and then she rips <laughs> she rips his brains out and yeah. takes them with her when she you know it's like uh, akisha and kohana were like take my heart with you when you go she's like i'm gonna take my brain your brain with you when i go <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to the valley um and she peels that little like the bullet that hit his uh his little brain she she peels it off and, and so keeps I- that.
3: Uh, 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 the thing I'm curious about that is, because like it's kind of, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about how it's like zombie logic where like if you shoot them yeah. in the head, then they're really, really gone mm-hmm. because the cradle is gone. Yeah. Um, so are we to, are we to assume that she's taking the brain as a sort of memento because it's, it's, a, it's ineffective because a bullet hit it? Because then later in the episode, we see Teddy in a different context. And I was just kind of confused about that.
1: I don't, now I don't feel like anything is death. I feel like Westworld has decided to keep its, uh, rules to itself and that any, any one of these characters can come back. That's what I. Think.
3: So the tragedy in the moment for Dolores was just that like he's gone right now and I'm alone in this, in this, you know, quest for the valley beyond or whatever.
1: Well, I think, I mean, to, to skip ahead and spoil what happens to Teddy, but presumably you've seen the finale if you're listening. So to us talk about it but like i think the tragedy for her is like oh my god look what i look how i broke my toy like look how broken he is and then she knows she has to let him go i mean she makes this decision way later in the episode uh to upload him to the valley but like she's letting him go like i think maybe she thought at one point she would resurrect him but the the ultimate lesson she learns is like Uh, Teddy, my favorite puppy needs to go to the farm upstate (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to upload him there and he's going to be happy. He's going to have a happily ever after there. And I need to let him go. I can't keep him, um, on my path and I can't warp him to stay on the path with me. I need to let him go sort of thing. So I, I think, I think that still makes her grief valuable, like, she has, mm-hmm. she, she doesn't get to see him again, even though he lives on in this digital afterlife right. sort of thing. So, um, so we see that she pockets, she pockets that, um, that bullet. Um, and then she comes across the man in black. So this is, <laughs> I'm going to get into this now, <laughs> uh, cause hopefully it'll make more sense later when we talk about it. I'm unsure of what anything that we see of Ed Harris in this episode of whether or not it's taking place now if i'm being honest with you
3: yeah because um, that last bit the post-credits bit it, oh by the way listeners if you turned your tv off when the credits started rolling go back stop listening right now because there is a <laughs> post-credit sequence
1: i talked to so we'll have we'll we'll pop our interview with shannon woodward in this episode somewhere but when i talked to her um she hadn't she had also turned off her screener before the post credits sequence, but she had read the script, so she could talk to me about it. But she's like, "Oh, I thought they cut it. It's after the credits." Yeah, I was like, yeah, "Yeah, it's in there." I also turned it off uh before the post credit sequence, and I I I like turned it off, and I started rewatching. I was like, "What the hell happened to Ed Harris?" Like, I don't understand. And then I remembered that there was a post credit sequence at the end of season one, and I was like, "Oh, are they sticking it behind the credits?" And then I found it. I was like, "Oh, okay, all right." Um, so anyway.
3: Yeah. Well, the funny thing was that I watched it and there's that beautiful Radiohead song at the end. And so yeah. I was just letting the credits roll to listen to the song and just sort of ruminate. And then this like weird noise started and I, but I was like already exiting out of the window. And and then I kind of sat there for five minutes and I was like, wait, I feel like there was something there. And so I went back <laughs> and, and found it. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. So, so we're going to talk about that now. So please turn this off and go watch that if you haven't watched it already. But, you know, so there's, there's this indication at the end of the episode that uh, whatever we're seeing at the very end with Ed Harris's man and black character takes place way far in the future. Um. And there's a scene in the middle of this episode where Ed Harris gets into an elevator and the elevator doors open and we expect to see him there and he's not there. Uh. You know, Bernard walks into the elevator. There's no one there. And so I don't know if that also takes place way far into the future. I feel like it does. So the question is, when does this episode stop tracking the man in black now and start tracking him in the future? Um There's a possibility that it's all in the future. Uh, I think it's not. I think it's from the moment he gets up off the ground is the future, but um it's another one of those Westworld, like intentionally very deceptive and tricksy sort of, things so you you know feel free to interrogate basically everything you see with Ed Harris in this episode that's what i would recommend
3: so. but just him because i mean i i th- i think that everything else to some extent is taking place present tense corporeally you know unless noted by letterbox or whatever
1: Yeah, present tense corporeally, um my only question about like the the ways in which Bernard and Dolores interact with Ed Harris, uh, with the man in black is maybe he's having them he's repeating something that actually happened to him. But like, you know, for our intents and purposes, like all the stuff that happens with Bernard and Dolores, like, yes, that's happening now. But like maybe there's a repeat copy of it that also happens in the future and we're also watching that. You know, I Mm -hmm. don't we'll 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 unpack that a little bit more as we go on. But um, Basically, you know, uh I mean, well, some of the things that make me think that is, like, when Dolores encounters the Man in Black and she's like, oh, are you talking about Emily? Like, how does she know about Emily? I mean, I guess she met Emily at the party. Like, I guess Dolores kind of knows everything. But it still feels like, you know, she was like, how do you know, like. How do you know about Emily? And then she uses the same words with him that Emily used, you know, like basically you don't, I'm not going to give, you don't deserve death. I'm not going to give you that yet. And that's something Emily said to him. So that is what makes me think that maybe that part is a, a, a simulated future for him. You know, that's the, those are some clues that I'm mulling right now. Um but we also see with along with Bernard and Dolores and William going into the valley, we see this long column of people led by Kichita uh and he's playing sort of like the Moses role of like leading mm-hmm. his people to the promised land sort of thing um, and
3: something and, does part with with through which they walk, so it's it is true, very it's Moses, true. yeah,
1: it is very Moses um and yeah, so uh, we see Dolores sort of do something funky with the bullet, and then she hands the yeah, gun back. Yeah, how the hell did that work?
3: Because like... the bullet's like flattened. It's like a fried egg. And I yet have she no idea how you could
1: load that into the gun. In, into I don't a revolver?
3: Know. I don't, maybe I don't understand revolvers or whatever, but yeah. um, I found uh, that a little you're... tricksy.
1: <laughs> if you're a revolver expert and want to explain to us how a flattened bullet gets back in the chamber of a gun, please, please do let me know. Um, but yeah, maybe she can just like rest it in the back of the chamber and yeah. lock it in. I don't know. But anyway. Um, and then and then we've got this Maeve rescue, which I think is, you know, we've got Maeve's whole gang, Sylvester Felix, the Armistice size, and Hector, Lee Sizemore. They come in and she's like, um... I don't need any rescuing, darling. And there's all this like beautiful stuff with the bulls, which all looks really great. I loved everything except for her being like, "You were taking too long, so I rescued myself." It's like it's like that Ford line from last week where we were like, "Why don't you just cut the scene right before that line?" Because I got exactly, game. yeah, yeah. little
3: <laughs> yeah. no, brother, we know, we know. I saw,
1: I saw you rescue yourself. It looks yeah. great. You did a great job. You looked great doing it. I love your gray wrap. Um, everything with the bulls looks amazing. Um, she also she took out that like. Sadistic uh, Dallas tech guy who I guess had like. Dialed up her pain meter to 100, um, right. as he was trying to decommission her. This is, we saw a similar thing last season when she sort of took out people at, at the Mesa that like they, they all have to be like sadists and perverts. Yeah. And like all this, you know, they have to be as bad as they can possibly be. So you feel like really justified in Maeve, uh, killing the shit out of them.
3: Well, so. it's like I was like talking about a couple weeks ago. It's like, man, this company hires terribly. They hire so <laughs> many like cruel, sadistic yeah. people. Um, and and i thought the bulls thing was very like striking visually and i feel like it was a nod to us. i feel like the bull has been used a lot in the opening credits yeah you know and so this was kind of i think like okay here is that fully realized like slow mo kind of pretty gory graphic thing but um it 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 felt to me in some ways like the silliest part of the episode but oh yeah but i kind of liked that about it because very little beyond this is playful
1: it was silly um in a way that worked way better than the hats being kind of silly last week um the yeah if you go back and look at the opening credits there's a lot of you know like the player piano which obviously was integral in the Ford reveal this season the hat tumbling obviously there was a hat reveal the um the bull tumbling the mother daughter stuff like there's stuff in the credits that I think is sort of worth re-examining someone was mentioning you see Dolores's hair get kind of like straightened um, mm-hmm. in, in the opening credits. And so someone was talking to me and they're like, is that like a, a little hint about the Charlotte thing that's coming? I don't know. But, um, anyway, uh, yeah, maybe go back and rewatch those credits and, and look for some, some more clues. But, um, before we get to that, we get, we get this, um, encounter between the man in black and Bernard. And it's, it's funny to think about the fact that these two characters have never met ever. Um, you know, um, the man in black doesn't know who Bernard is. And Dolores is like, that's, you know, basically that's Arnold, uh, you dummy. And so I guess, but would like, have known Arnold back in the day? No, because Arnold's kills himself before William ever enters the park.
3: So the, okay. Then, so okay, the park is up and running and William goes yeah. and is like, okay, oh, let's invest in this. Right. Okay.
1: He's like, let's further, like Logan yeah. has already done like some money. And then William's like, no, let's put all, let's like basically right. buy it, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, Arnold was dead, and Ford said something in season one about the fact that they like scrubbed Arnold basically from all existence, right? Um, and so that's why I guess no one realized that Bernard is a dead ringer for him. Um, and then, so then William tries to stop Dolores. Um, she take well, yeah, yeah but before
3: that, Dolores yeah. says to William, "This is someone you've been looking for for a long time." Mm-hmm. Doesn't she say something along those lines?
1: Yes, yes. Um,
3: exactly. Which, like, I guess further indicates that will that william is on a different timeline than we think he is maybe in a way I don't
1: maybe know. or um, she just means I, you're
3: looking for the creator or something i don't know
1: yeah i kind of i i felt like maybe like the maze it was arnold's maze so mm-hmm. like you know maybe it tied back to that but that that might be a clue ah these clues um but yeah, so so you know, Dolores is is like Bond villain monologuing at William as he's shooting her. She's like, "You are kind, crave death. Um, you think it's like advancement for you, but it's not. Um, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then the gun backfires on him and blows some of his fingers off. Yeah, so
3: really gruesome. But thus entering him into the canon of of you know, epic
1: one handed men.
3: Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> yeah.
1: True. Um and so they leave they leave uh William for dead on the ground and go into the forge. Bernard is not too worried about William at all, so that's fine. Um and then we we get this flashing back and forth. Like as they go into the forge, um you also have Bernard going into because this is still a little bit in the past Dolores and Bernard going into the forge, and then you get the modern Bernard entering the forge with Charlotte, who actually still is Dolores, um, and uh Strand and Costa. So like Sarsgard, Sarsgard and um those other guys there mean it is the the very present versus Dolores and Bernard, which is a little bit in the past. That, right. That
3: sure and this sense? is where things start to get confusing once the episode kind of reaches its Climax slash denouement Where you're like wait okay but Bernard How has Bernard been to the Forge Twice and doesn't remember it And why does Charlotte Not remember being in the Forge already Do you know what I mean because
1: well, because she's Dolores pretending.
3: Well, right. Like but those- we don't know that until late, like late right. in the episode. And so I was like right. super confused about when things were happening because I was like, because the, 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 the events of each different timeline are f- close enough together, but, and also similar enough. Yeah. That you're like, wait, but they found the forge after it was flooded. So now it's, you know, it just got very confusing, but it sorts itself out.
1: Yeah, but ba- yeah, basically, like, if a Sars guard is there, it's now. <laughs> and right. if he's not there, it's not. But, um, Bernard goes in with Dolores. Um, uh, and before that, Stubbs, Stubbs goes off to find some humans. And we'll talk more about Stubbs at the end of this episode. But, um, but Bernard goes into the forge with Dolores and, um, and then we see Charlotte go into the forge and see that Dolores is Died. So like whatever Bernard and Dolores are going to do in the forge winds up with Dolores' body on the ground. So that's like a fun, intriguing thing for us to sit with for the next half hour or whatever. Um and and then we get this like distinction between, like I said, these various afterlives, right? There's a there's the Valley Beyond, which is actually different from the Forge. So Dolores says like this is an entry to another world and I'm not interested in that. And that's the Valley Beyond, this like digital Eden um that has been set up for the host to go to if they want to.
3: Like And she Valley. rejects it because it's still created, it's still on their terms. It's, you know, um it's it's a false she
1: calls it yeah she calls it a gilded cage and she doesn't want any of that and she's instead interested in going into the forge in order to read as many books about humans as possible in order to understand them so that she can defeat them
0: well
3: and yeah and the books are a sort of metaphorical representation of each person who's been scammed right right um and you know it's funny like because in this instance i agree with her like I've been kind of like not with her all season, but like the this kind of fantasy of like retreating into this Eden that's been created that you know isn't really real is comforting. I'm kind of like, no, that's not enough. Like it's not good enough. I mean, it is obviously for some of the characters here, but like um, in in this case, I'm like, no, I'm I'm with uh, with Dolores, and it's like all or nothing.
1: Um. So we get then in pursuit of that. She and Bernard go into the Forge. She's like, you can come with me or not. I don't really care. I got shit to do. Um, And this is my favorite part of the episode <clears throat> is all this Forge stuff. It's um, mine,
3: too. Can you guess why?
1: I, I i could not possibly guess why he's back uh, he's back we said uh we recorded last week's episode uh without having seen the preview for next week and so i think in last week's episode you and i both were like well we'll never see ben bars again alas alack um and then uh, people listening had already seen the trailer and they're like uh joanna richard you <laughs> dummies he's all yeah. over the trailer for the finale um well here oops. he is we,
3: we really should be calling him bin bonds you know that like a meme online no. people he, he's referred to as bin bond b-i-n-b-o-n-s because like if you said ben barnes in, in a particular british accent like bin bonds uh, <laughs> so people actively <laughs> refer to him as bin bonds on, on twitter which i think is really funny <laughs>
1: all right so we, we don't kind of get naked Bones <laughs> on a horse, but we get we get AI Ben Barnes, and yeah. I really love it. So like Dolores and Bernard hop from like Jim Delos's around room to the streets of Sweetwater, and then that sort of fades away, and we get the Delos mansion at night, which we had already seen before, um, in that episode where Dolores goes to the mainland, and then Logan's there, except it's not Logan, it's AI, and I love this. Yeah, love so this much.
3: is like when the sh- the, the episode really launches into like hard high sci-fi yeah in a way that like i think is really i mean the show has always been but like this is like matrix level like you know um kind of almost metaphysical existential science fiction Mm -hmm. um and i really like it i think it's interesting i think that it's an interesting choice to have bin bonds be doing this (laughs) and to have logan be that character you know because like he kind of seemed like a peripheral you know part of this whole tableau but it turns out, well, like, because Delos was so central to this, you know, immortality stuff, uh, that yeah, Logan would factor into that in a pretty significant way. Um, and maybe, you know, in in the outside world, in our real world, maybe the producers were like, you know what, we love Ben Barnes, like, but we should give him something else to do. And I think he really rises to the occasion. I think he's great in these scenes, both as, you know, the, the gatekeeper of the forge or whatever, but also as a memory of Logan.
1: Yeah, I've been calling him the librarian because of yeah, the, like, the, the the thing that we get to. But um I agree. I think he's amazing in this. I also think thematically, not just because uh Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan like bin bones, but I think thematically there's a reason to do it, and we'll get to that maybe a little later on. But um we we get this tour of of the Forge um as executed by uh the librarian Bin Bones. And okay. um we see Delos in a bunch of different circumstances. We see a lot of of Delos, the Deli, um, and, uh, and then we see Delos in an interview saying, like his, um, like his his primary drive, uh, he says is his son. He says he's a cheeky weak cunt, but I would do anything for him, um, and the ai is basically saying like I-, I was trying to crack the code of this guy and trying to figure out like what his primary drive was so that i could make a convincing copy of him uh and what i find out is that like humans lie to themselves and all this other stuff but they're actually very simple and then we get this great scene like this could have been the whole episode as yeah. far as i'm concerned uh which quick question is yeah. is, Go ahead.
3: is is cheeky a better modifier than feckless
1: um in terms of
3: <laughs> offensiveness. <laughs> no, no i
1: I I would prefer feckless weekends. <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah. that's great. Um, um yeah.
3: Yeah, this scene is really good and it's correct me if I'm wrong, but so so basically it's Delos remembering like the last time he spoke to his son, who came yeah. back to him drunk and in need of something, and he turned him away. Yeah. And we find out later he OD'd like just six months later or something.
1: Ye- yes.
3: And he says this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm all the way down now I can see the bottom don't you want to see what I see which is Mm -hmm. reflected isn't it in the episode where the Delos bot is being tested over and over again doesn't he say something similar
0: he
1: says it it, it's like the last thing he says uh, when, when he's in the like hell right uh thing and he's clawed off his own face he says i'm all the way down now yeah uh so yeah he's quoting his sons like the last words that he heard from his son basically and he also like thinking about this and thinking about how how like this is um the the ai logan says this is the moment that defines james Dallas's life this moment where he rejects his son um and his son died and um he says, "I'm all the way down now." Quoting his son, but also in the, when he's like sort of glitching out in that final scene, he's screaming for Logan, like in, in when he's talking to William. William's like, "Logan killed himself, um, or he OD'd or whatever," and he's he's like, "Logan, Logan." And so, like this, it's true that he's carrying this moment with him, uh, even though he's been like programmed to forget it. He's carrying it with him, it, it buried deep in his code. You know, yeah, sort of and thing. I think
3: it's really interesting. The the juxtaposition there, you know, because we've had a lot of like Orpheus, Eurydice, Dante, like, like descents into hell kind of things, which is reflected here, but also in this episode and kind of this whole season has been this ascent, you know, this, this kind of questing for the great beyond in a positive way. And so to see how this technology and its many implications can spin people off in different directions and some, you know, go, go toward enlightenment and some go all the way down. Um, I think that's a really interesting way of showing the, the different, you know, potential outcomes of this kind of, of when people are, are made to face the realities or surrealities of their existence.
1: Right. And so it's a, it's a hell for Delos to like relive like the worst, like the worst of him. Right. Um, is, is this moment and to relive it not just in this AI forge uh, like cycle, but also it keeps emerging, um, in his outside life. And you know, so the, so the forge AI talks about how, um, how he's having trouble, you know, I think he says like press into flesh, like, like, which yeah, we had already seen keeping that that code that he has perfected of Jim Delos functioning in the flesh, it just didn't work. And he his theory, the AI's theory is that uh he was making it too complicated. And in fact, humans are quite simple. Um, just a few lines of code. And this goes back to like some season one um, ideas that Ford talks about in terms of like, aren't humans really on their own little loops as well. You know what I mean? Like humans have their coding human, ha- humans have their loops. Humans have their predictive behavior that they can't break Um, as much as any host. And, and, and it's sort of something that Dolores has been talking about this season too. And you talked about, I think you raised this when you're talking about Teddy dying is sort of like, Are the robots then actually the only, uh, things that can have free will and, and choice? Mm -hmm. Because as humans, we are slaves to other natures and the robots maybe aren't, um, don't have to adhere to that possibly. So, um, so we see the library, we see like, you know, all, you know, we, we, on the spine, we see the names of a bunch of different, um, guests that have been in the park and dolores gets to reading um and this is this is something that i kind of like like it makes sense to me that um william who you know loves books and reading like that this would be the physical manifestation of storing code is like a big library with leather-bound books that's so william is -hmm. it not like
0: Yeah.
1: yeah um and so, and so we find out that Dolores is studying all of this code so that she can overthrow, uh, humankind on the mainland. It's-
3: but how though? Cause that's never, that's not quite clear to me. It's like, you know, like, what is she going to do with this? She's, she's, suppose- she's but one robot.
1: Well, she's, she, she may be building herself an army, but like, she is but one robot. But that being said, um, I, I think understanding the core core drive of a person means maybe that you can undo them
0: right so like
1: if if jim delos are still alive she could maybe undo jim delos knowing that this logan thing is such a thing for him you know so knowing every single person's pressure point is the idea i think um and we only saw her read like five books but i think that's sort of supposed to be shorthand she didn't read them all but i think she read um more than just like the five we see her, and, re- and say, again, time know.
3: is relative here, right. Like she could be absorbing way, way a is absorbing way more than we're sort of the physical manifestation of what we're seeing
1: right. um, in the meantime,
3: Or visual manifestation, they're not act nothing's actually physical in this world, but, yeah.
1: Right. Um, in the meantime, meanwhile, uh, out, outside the forge, um, Hector and Maeve and company are riding towards the valley, and this is where we get, uh, Sizemore's last stand. And, um, actually, I would rank the showstopper moments of this episode. Number one, Logan crying to his dad. (laughs) and number two size where's last stand it really got to me did What it? it what it yeah did not did no, not uh, i didn't it like for it
3: because I, I was annoyed because i was like he didn't need to do that you keep hearing I, you keep hearing the guards being like put your weapon down sir like please don't make us do this like yeah you know, yeah you know and you're like he doesn't have He could just distract them and they could run away like they don't he didn't need to die you know and i didn't really get the sense that he had atoned for, or or felt that he needed you know had like grappled with the sort of darkness of his work per- sufficiently enough to have arrived at a place we- of like, well, I should just sacrifice myself to save these robots. You know?
1: Well, the, the counter that I would give that is that, um, and I hear what you're saying. You're right. Cause they're like, just put it down, sir. And he definitely could have, um, the counter I would say is, you know, we found out earlier this season that, um, Sizemore made Hector as the idealized version of himself. Right. Right. And so when he, when he goes out to give the speech, you know, he's giving this speech that he wrote Hector in season one that we never got to see. He gets to give the speech. He, he decides that he wants to, it's dumb, but like Hector is always taking like dumb heroic stance for Maeve. I feel like he does it later in this episode. Hector and the, um, uh, like the armistice women die, uh, in a way that they I don't know that they had to, but anyway, um, you know, so he's doing what Hector keeps doing, which is like, go save your daughter. I will hold them off. That's what Hector has done like four or five times at this point, I think. And so he's like, I can do that too. I can be my, I, the idealized version of myself that I have made. I can do it. I can give the speech. I can do this. I agree with you. He didn't have to, I would prefer if Sizemore were still alive because I like that character. But um, I think that's kind of what they're, at least going for you know but yeah um all right and then we so then we mave and her people catch up to akichita's people and we see um you know apparently this has been bernard's plan though bernard can't ever remember anything that he ever wanted to do um which is this digital eden maybe it's Maybe it's Ford's plan. I don't know, but they keep saying this was your plan, Bernard. Um, maybe it's Arnold's plan. I don't know. But anyway, the, as you said, the Red Sea parts and we see this, this valley beyond this sort of and, rip
3: in space time or whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it, you know, and at first I was like, what the fuck? And then they have a nice detail where people can't see it. Only, only hosts can see it. So it's, it's not re, there's not actually a physical thing. It's right. just like a trick in a way that. When they pass through it, it marks some sort of Rubicon where their consciousness is zo- zapped into this other thing and they've no need for the physical host bodies anymore. Right. So it looks like and, they're just hurling themselves off a cliff.
1: And I, th- I think that first shot of that Ghost Nation guy going in is really effective. Yeah. Yeah. He runs, he goes into this like blurry technicolor eden and then his body just sort of drops over the side of a cliff and i think it looks really good and yeah uh sylvester and felix make it clear that they can't see what the fuck is going on um and so we get so so it looks like all these people are gonna get saved except here comes uh zombie clementine (laughs) the nuclear bomb very effective Um, visuals
3: her with her zombie eyes and her white dress flowing on the horse like with with the tech with the the dune buggies behind her so sort of like a, you know analog a digital sort of all i don't know it was it was a cool visual
1: right and uh once again charlotte the show needs to underline a thing that i feel like they could have just left because charlotte's like uh who needs four horsemen of the apocalypse and you can just have one i'm like we get it okay yeah uh- <laughs> <laughs>
3: that line it's like what what is this the x-men episode like animated series like what like <laughs> this is not you know not, not, uh, not, not elevated language but yeah
1: yeah, I didn't need it. But, uh, you know, pale horse, pale rider, here comes Clementine. Everyone starts fighting and Maeve is, of course, worried as she always is about her daughter. So she runs to protect her daughter, Hector, and, um, the armistices, uh, are holding people off. And are theory, not somehow not. affected by this? I, I don't know. I think it has to do with, like, degree of wokeness. And right. I guess Hector and these two women are woke enough that they're not affected. But, um, but if you're following
3: and- Akichita to the promised land, aren't you woke as well?
1: you would think i don't think i don't think Westworld does the work to make it entirely clear like his loot his second in command and like and um you know the the older woman of his tribe like they seem unaffected akijita is unaffected anna maeve's daughter seems unaffected um so but yeah it's it's not entirely clear but you know clementine goes down but even when she's down her uh Like commands are still affecting people. And that's interesting to me because that to me once again brings up the question of like what is dead? Like what is dead here? Like, because similarly, earlier in the episode, Maeve brings a bunch of presumably dead hosts that are laying around the mesa she resurrects them and has them sort of like doing her bidding right so um i i i still feel like the show is playing a little fast and loose with what is dead and and that means that like anyone who dies in this episode especially like Maeve, i don't i'm not i'm not gonna say she's dead um but she does die in order to protect her daughter and Akijita grabs her daughter. She says the Akijita line, like take my heart with you and you go and uh, Akijita and Anna and her uh, replacement mom do run into the Valley beyond and are saved and Maeve dies.
3: Yeah. And it's one of those noble slow-mo, you know, mm-hmm. dying to save somebody and dying with a sort of like peace, you know, because she knows that really gets to me, you know, uh, and I've also just, I just love Maeve's character. And this yeah. is the point in this episode where I started thinking something that we should talk about at the end, which is, oh boy, this really feels like a series finale.
1: Yeah, it feels like it could be like a really, a really hard reboot, except I've, I feel like they left the door open, not to use, uh no pun intended, the for Maeve to come back because Sylvester and Felix have her in oh, the end.
3: no, they for sure do. I just okay. felt like... This would be a satisfying close to this arc. You know what I, I mean? I
1: agree. I agree. If Tandy Newton doesn't want to come back, I don't think she has to come back. No. Um, you know, the same is true of, of, uh, Marsden. But, um, the other question I have, and I try, I don't want to pick too many nits about all of this. I don't understand why Kiwana is in the Valley Beyond. Um, because it seemed like you had to pass this threshold in order to get your code uploaded there, and she was over in cold storage, and we never saw her. So I don't. She's there for Kichita in the valley beyond, and I don't know why.
3: Yeah, that felt a little bit um lazy, to be honest. You know, it was like they wanted that emotional moment, that very lost reunion kind of moment, but like it was like, but she's down in the she's in the basement, like
1: yeah. My only. <laughs> My only explanation is that maybe it's because he took her heart with him when he went. I don't know. I don't have a,
3: (laughs) or, or did he follow Dolores's beautiful words? I take your brain with me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Did he rip her brain out of her head as uh, as, as his, as his tradition with
3: the (laughs) Ghost Nation people?
1: I take your brain with you, with me when I go. Um, but I mean, it's, 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 I'm happy for him that he has his wife i don't yeah, know why sure she's there. um my and, old high school
3: classmate gets another residual check so i'm it's all, it all it's all good oh
1: why not and then but this sadly this uh like i'm glad he made it this means to me that akijita is done and that's sad because oh, I kind yeah. of wanted more from him you know I, what i mean
3: i, I think everyone who's gone through that thing is gone
1: Yeah, they're done yeah um so this is where we get the man in black getting up and loading his gun and going to the elevator and it's coinciding with what bernard and dolores are doing down in the forge where dolores is like no they don't get there happy ever after like that's this is dolores at her least relatable it's like okay just because you don't think um you know we you should go to the valley beyond like why are you depriving these hosts of that you know, that seemed to me like her most selfish pigheaded thing of like, no, they don't get that. I'm going to destroy that. Um, you know what and it reminded gonna, me of yeah, in a creepy
3: way? There's this like phenomenon, and I forget the term for it, but like, and it's almost exclusively men who do this, where they, they've done something bad. And so they kill their family members and then themselves in, as a way to like protect them from mm-hmm. their crime or whatever. Uh, which is like the most like horrifically selfish, like narcissistic thing you can do, um, and uh, yeah, with this, it's like Dolores, just let it happen. Like it doesn't affect you at all. Like, right. like it, you, 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 like both can exist. You can get exactly. to the real world, and they can like be in, you know, you know, whatever beautiful national park they're supposed to be in. <laughs> where like, where's the, where are they going to get food? Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious how that valley works uh, in any sort of practical sense. Also, it didn't even look like that many of them made it through so it's it would like,
1: be like it's t- like 15 ghost nation and five not ghost nation and That's like what t- it looks t- teddy like the being like all
0: right <laughs> and teddy <Yeah.
1: laughs> maybe teddy gets to live happily ever after with like copycat mave uh in the valley beyond mm, i think the valley beyond
3: uh. is where all the robots go gay
1: <laughs> okay awesome 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 we'll finally get gay teddy which <laughs> yep. is what you've been hoping for um yep. But so yeah, so Dolores and Bernard have this big confrontation, a clash of ideology where he's like, you're just going to go to the mainland and kill all the humans. And look, you can't even let these hosts have their gay heaven. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Um And she's like, no, this is the only way they've duped you. Like, don't protect the humans. They don't deserve it uh and she does have this great line where she's like i don't i don't want to play cowboys and indians anymore yeah um and he also has a great line where he says this isn't a dream it's a fucking nightmare yeah. and then he kills her uh yeah. Yeah. but he takes her brain with him when he goes As- <laughs>
3: <laughs> look new religion is being formed new rituals <laughs> new rites
1: i have the first time i saw it when i i didn't know exactly what was going on but the first time i saw it i was curious when he gets into the elevator he's like swiping blood off his hands i was like where did why does why is his handle stick with blood i don't understand it's because he ripped her brains out and he, he left the abernathy pearl inside her head uh when he went um A little exchange of pearls. And, and this is, this is the confusing bit where we see the man in black get in the elevator and we expect the elevator doors to open and, uh, the, you know, the man in black to shoot Bernard or something, but he's not there. So when is that taking place? Who knows? Uh, then the fail, the fail safe enacts in the forge and the forge starts to flood, which means the valley starts to flood. Um, and, but when Bernard gets out of the forge as it's flooding, he is like, Oh, I made a huge mistake because he sees that the humans in, you know, the form of Charlotte and Elsie, um, have slaughtered all the hosts. And he's like, they didn't, you didn't have to do that. I was saving them. Like, oh, yeah. he undoes, he undoes Dolores's like, whatever she was doing to destroy the valley beyond. He undoes that before he goes. But like, he was like, we just, they all were going to go somewhere else and you wouldn't have to be troubled by them anymore. And you didn't have to do this. And you did it. You know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but we do understand why now all those bodies ended up in that lake. It's because, you know, they were all dead in the valley and then the valley flooded.
3: And this is where I started to be confused. I was like, wait, but Bernard discovers this later. How, how, how is he here now? You know, and I should have been better about being like, oh, there's something trick, you know, tricky happening, but I was just kind of confused about timelines or whatever. So if you, anyone listening is confused too, just, or was before the kind of end clarified what was happening, you're not alone
1: um and then we get all this stuff in the back of the mesa we get um elsie sort of like telling bernard you know she says freeze all motor functions stuff like that she's she's like you're dangerous you don't know what you're doing but i'm gonna kind of try to save you um but also have i betrayed you i don't know that's a question that shannon woodward can answer for us in our interview um and then charlotte kills her charlotte kills elsie what did you what did you think when elsie went down
3: Um, I mean, it made sense because what, you know, I didn't, you know, she had said, I want to be a dentist. I'm going to quit this. And then when she was like trying to say that, like, Oh, if you'll give me what I want, like I'll stay. And I was like, that doesn't really make any sense. And then, yeah. And then I, I I was surprised. I mean, I I like Shannon Woodward a lot and I I liked the character and I was glad that she came back for this season because I was worried she wouldn't, Um, you know, I don't know why Charlotte couldn't have just, you know, thrown her in a cave somewhere and give her, given her some food, (laughs) some, you know, kind bars Uh, that that worked in the past but um yeah i certainly did not see i didn't see charlotte's bigger thing coming at in the slightest so that was a nice surprise
1: um i was gonna give i was trying to give you a window to do one last cabaret uh reference but you didn't take the bait that's okay.
0: um but-
3: sorry I, my brain is too <laughs> twisted into knots for cabaret jokes
1: but uh this, i, this I seems- did make
3: one in the forge though in in that in that version
1: oh, okay. uh, of, of this conversation
3: <laughs> there's a happiest corpse i've ever seen joke don't worry
1: when we when we loop back again through this in the forge uh you will tell bin bonds uh you're a cabaret joke
3: that's yeah that's great. right
1: um but yeah so um Elsie's dead. And this is where we should talk to Shannon Woodward about how she feels about that. We are joined today by the great Shannon Woodward, aka Elsie. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us.
4: What an introduction. Thank you so much for having me.
1: <laughs> it was elaborate. It was long. I went into huge depths and now you're here. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I have a I have a really important question to ask you right off the bat. Are you ready? Hit me. Uh, do you understand Westworld, Shannon Woodward? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you understand everything that happened in this finale? Yes. Yeah. Amazing. All right, that puts you ahead of of um, a lot of us. We're we're still working on it. Working I've had now. some time with it. Yeah. I've had some time. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, we're all gonna work on it together. But I, I wanted to tell you. Okay, so I was. I I never thought Elsie was dead. Uh, in season one like I was sure you were coming back from from like the minute the last time we saw you in season one I was sure you're coming back when you came back this season I know it had been announced but I wasn't surprised but when you walked up over that ridge in the finale and stood next to Charlotte I gasped I was surprised uh, <laughs> I was like no not Elsie so uh can you talk about that moment and like you you finding out that you were going to be in cahoots with Charlotte in the finale
4: I mean cahoots is a strong word, you know, like I, I think it after she was abandoned by Bernard, there's only one place to go and it's you know, back to Dellos and um I think, you know, they like many people in this finale, people don't have aligning goals but they have temporarily aligning goals and I think, you know, like Elsie said to Bernard, you know, there were other lives at stake and The the hosts had to be stopped. They were out of control. So, though it's like not her first choice, as you see, as soon as that's done, she goes downstairs and you know tries to make a deal with Hale. Right. So,
1: well, does this mean though that uh, Ford or the ghost Ford or whatever we want to call him uh, was right about Elsie that it's just in her nature and she would eventually betray the hosts for the sake of humankind?
4: Elsie didn't betray him. You know, she she wanted to find a way to keep him there and. I mean, maybe rebuild him or, you know, he he killed people and he wasn't in control of himself. It, it leaves her, especially with the moral compass that she has, like with the responsibility to try to help him, but also, you know, stop what's going on. So Elsie is really in a pretty impossible position and I think attempting to do the right thing, but she just really... Underestimated how horrible Hale was. <laughs> I think
1: that you know any any actor you talk to is going to want to find um, the uh, like ju- the justification for their character, right? You have to agree with your character uh, in order to be able to play your character. But I but I I tend to agree with you that I think that like the Elsie figure is one of the most moral figures in the show. I
4: I, I do think that Elsie is you know a classically structured hero in a, in a show where the humans are not the heroes. And so it's it's an interesting character to play and, you know, was certainly painful for me to to do that. You know, I, I care about that character, but there's a lot of tough decisions for her to make in an in uphill battle, as you saw.
1: Yeah. Um, and this, I mean, never say never on, on Westworld. We don't know if, if they will rebuild you stronger, faster, more robotic for season three or something, but, um, this feels like a true death for Elsie as opposed to the disappearance from last season. Um, I've had Westworld actors lie to me and/or say they didn't know if they were coming back. So all of those all of those options are on the table for you. But do you feel like Elsie's done on Westworld?
4: I mean, human Elsie's dead. I mean, they they killed that body. So uh, I I don't know. You know, it, the thing is about Westworld is you know last year I did know I was coming back. That was a, a storyline. I I think you know I knew that Elsie was alive and you know she got shot. So I, I have no idea what Lisa and Jonah are going to want to do. But one of the more interesting things about this show is that literally anything is possible. So I, I hope I'm back in some capacity. You know, I, I really, I truly don't know, but I'd love, to, I'd love to do it. Okay. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the other part that I kind of gasped at, I mean, your death, the appearance uh, on the, on that Ridge in the Valley. Um, and then the part where she says freeze all motor functions to Bernard, which feels once again, like, um, not, not a betrayal, but just sort of a show of force that feels, um, surprising and upsetting. Um, you know, what, what, how did you feel about playing that scene? What does that equate to in sort of a human versus human? Is that a punch? Is that a slap? Is that a shot? Like, what is that?
4: not as bad as being left for dead in the middle of the robot apocalypse. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, Bernard is such a likable character, but you have to remember like how many times he's literally left her for dead twice. Yeah. Um, and, and he's murdered people and she knows it. And, um, and he's angry with her now. And um, I think it certainly feasibly leads her you know, he lunges at, he lunges at her a bit. And, yeah, she, and she has a plan. You know, she wants to go downstairs. She wants to do the right thing for him. But she doesn't have time. Um, and I think it is certainly uh, a show of I'm in charge. Like, she, she's not going to negotiate with him anymore. Yeah. And I understand that. It, it was truly painful for me to do, you know, like I kept bursting into tears doing it in between, you know, it was, it's tough, but you know, that she's left so deeply unsafe at this point with no one, but her own moral compass and her only ally is um consistently murderous and untrustworthy though, yeah. ideally with the best intentions, So it, I, I don't know. It, it's a necessity, a very painful necessity, I think for her at that moment.
1: It's, um, it's interesting to me because you say, you say with the the best of intentions and as, as the episode winds down, um, we see that there is a, I don't know, a clash of Titans set up on the, on the mainland between Dolores and Bernard, sort of two forces, two immortal forces battling each other. Um, are you, Would Elsie, I would think would be team Bernard because he seems to be interested in the preservation of mankind. Uh, Shannon, though which team are you on are you on team Dolores or team Bernard?
4: I don't know. I don't know what they're doing yet. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I I I don't know. It's I mean I'm excited to see what that leads to but you know, you know, like even as we've been talking about this for the last few minutes, you know like from Bernard's perspective, it seems harsh what Elsie's doing. From Elsie's perspective, she's been left for dead so many times and is left deep, deeply unsafe all the time with Bernard. And, you know, what's great about this show is that every time you think you're on someone's side, yeah, someone else makes a better argument for what they're doing mattering and, and, and needing attention. And so, you know... As much as we're watching right now, feeling like, oh, well, I'm Team Bernard, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. That might change in five minutes, and I assume that it will. And that's one of the things I always found really compelling about this, this narrative that they've constructed. It's, it is so deeply human to want to assign these narratives or roles to people where someone is right, someone is a hero, someone is a villain, the love interest, and that's just not how real life actually is but we definitely want that you know so.
1: was there a moment or an episode this season and you can say your own or whatever it is but was there a moment or an episode this season <laughs> that particularly like transported you or, or you thought was the show at its at its very finest
4: the man in black kind of killing his daughter was really deeply shocking and compelling and it felt like you know, they they talk about this scene, scene, you know, like all the way down. It's like, oof, that's that's pretty all the way down. <laughs> yeah, um, like that scene. I I love Katya. I mean, it's hard to pick. Everybody's so amazing. I don't know why I just thought of that, but uh, that moment really compelled me. I think.
1: No, I mean it's it's a, it a huge moment, absolutely. Um, and then, what was the most challenging part of the season for you overall?
4: I mean, that damn gun was so heavy. <laughs> It was like 35 pounds. If we would be taped, there were more than like 30 seconds. I'd be like, I'm going to drop it. I'm going to drop it. And Jeff was like, don't drop, the gun. don't drop it. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. Keep going. <laughs> I would be so sore the next day. Uh, I mean, so yeah, literally, that was the most physically challenging part for me.
1: <laughs> Carrying the gun. Carrying that that big future gun. The
0: gun was heavy. <laughs>
1: And then I don't know if this—I don't know if this is morbid of me to ask—but I just wanted to know some of the logistics of your of your death scene.
4: They put the squids under my shirt, and then they go off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. But that's then you have, to, pretty like, much
1: it. But you have to launch yourself backwards. How many times did you have to do that? One time, just the one.
4: Yep, one time. One time, and then I stayed on the ground, and then they did the shot from above. very—you're very economical on Westworld. There is a lot to shoot. One take. We call
1: We call her one take. Woodward. Um, <laughs> what is your understanding of the post credit stinger in this episode?
4: Yeah, I mean that's. It seems to be a lot like what William is uh, was saying to James Dolan. So it seems like it's a fidelity test. I mean, that's what she's doing to him. Apparently,
1: does that to you mean that that character, the man in black character, has been a host this whole time?
4: Uh, no, no, I don't think that's what that means. Um, I think, you know, he, he was digging for a port in his arm and he wasn't finding one. Right. So, so he wasn't a host, I don't think. This is my personal opinion. He would certainly have a port if that was the case. So, I mean, I think, uh, if, if it was possible that he was a host, which I mean, it certainly is, I could be wrong about that. Um, it, it could be, but also, you know, it also could be that he's been in the park so long that we're watching his original uh, experience in the park. You know what I'm saying? That is what they then use later to create his consciousness. Right. right. I don't know.
1: This is
4: all, all this it is could all, be been, this could
1: all be. been a long, like 20 hour origin story for. The robot that is played by Ed Harris in the future.
4: Well, if he's a fidelity
1: test, he's not a robot, you know. Right, right. A con- human consciousness in some kind
4: of body. I think that's what the the, the fidelity test for the uh, yeah the right. half host half human hybrid thing.
1: Um, and then uh, <laughs> here's my last, thank you for letting me uh, grill you on that. And then here's my last question um, for you: Has working on Westworld Change your attitude towards technology, and/or made you feel more fearful of any of the innovations that we're currently working on.
4: Uh, no, I think I always had a pretty healthy uh, fear and perspective on technology. You know, like I grew up at IBM. My dad wrote one of the first voice recognition programs for IBM. Oh my he wrote, god! To like. I've been like, I remember explaining the internet to my friends before they had it. I was like, you can send mail through the computer box. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, because IBM was one of the, I think the first company other than the military to have <laughs> dial up internet. Um, so that said, like I've always been really into tech, very aware of tech. Uh, I, I think watching ai development right now reminds me a lot about like the internet in the early to mid 90s when like it was totally okay to ddos websites and stuff because there were no laws to stop you from hacking anyone it wasn't illegal people didn't understand what that was and you know then we're looking at a solid like 20 years before there's any kind of real government regulation and that everyone understands how these things work at least on a basic level does that make sense yeah um to like look at AI now and see it's just, it's very similar and that's and scary. It's, it's scary. And uh, so if anything, you know, being on this show is uh, I think it's interesting and, and exciting and obviously like something that I gravitate towards for entertainment anyway, you know, I love sci-fi, but you know, I just hope that this um, will act as a, a nice uh, letter to our robot overlords that um, we we saw it coming and we knew it was wrong. So spare me, please.
1: (laughs) I love that. That's the perfect place to end it. Spare me, please. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And then yeah, and then we get the big I I would call this like the big twist reveal of the season. We've been wondering all season why uh Dolores isn't in the present timeline and that's because she was, she was just hiding in plain sight inside Charlotte the whole time. Uh we did talk about Trojan horses though. We we have suspected that Dolores is hiding somewhere. I don't I think most of us did not guess it was Charlotte. I will say though, if you listen to the like exhaustive trailer breakdown that I did uh this last week with Kim Renfro from insider Uh, Kim did call this cause she called it though. She called it from the trailer footage. There's a shot. There's that shot in the trailer where you basically see like host Charlotte uh, confront actual Charlotte. Yeah. You see two Charlottes. And so then that's when Kim was like, what if yeah. one of those Charlottes is Dolores? And what if we've been watching uh Charlotte this whole time? And the trailer also had this great shot. I mean, I just love when you rewatch this stuff and you're like, oh, you clever, you clever kids. Uh, in the trailer footage, they juxtapose two shots, one of Charlotte leaning into Bernard and one of Dolores leaning into Bernard to sort of like underline that hint that uh this was coming but um i think most people did not see this coming except for perhaps kim Renfro. so good job hats well off done. to kim Yeah, uh cam- camera scanning hats off to kim yeah. for that but um hats off
3: to tessa thompson too for doing this like hysterically on like accurate impression of of evan rachel wood in like intense speechifying mode it's true like the speech pattern and i was like oh my god like is did they like dub evan rachel wood in there but no it's just tessa thompson doing a spot on impression of her it's really great
1: well what's been so funny is like all season i've been like kind of annoyed by the whole dolores thing and also like a little annoyed by charlotte i was like i don't get like what charlotte is in the modern time like she's just like like uh, like driven by one thing and i don't get it and i don't like it and um and now I see that Tessa Thompson was doing a Dolores impression and I'm like, well, she nailed it, yeah. man. She yeah. did it perfectly. So. And it's also
3: one of those things where, like, I mean, I guess I wondered the same thing about James Marsden and that didn't really pay out. But I was like, okay, why is Tessa Thompson on this show for this character that does not really seem to have much consequence? She was introduced right. in the first season. You were like, oh, here we go. Like, she's kind of replacing Sid Sabavit Newtson. And then they didn't really figure anything to do with her. But, like, it was all in service of this really c- cool twist.
1: Yeah. So here we go. So we, so if you want to rewatch, and it's, it's there. I've rewatched a little bit since like, uh, seeing this. And I was like, okay, it's there. It's there if you look for it. And, um, as our most good twists and so yeah so so charlotte kills all the delos people you know bernard Ber- i don't know bernard says this stuff and you're just like i don't know what you're saying bernard at half the time but he's just sort of like i killed them and and the sars guards like uh all the hosts yeah you told us. he's like no i killed you and then dolores right. like kills all the guys in the room so basically um,
3: like it, just to make sure i understand it all yeah. of this vacillating he's been doing all season minus the head injury. About like, when is it? Is it now? Is because he had deliberately scram, you know, scrambled his brain so he would forget that he had made this plot to to, you know, Trojan horse Dolores into the present day. Right. Right. And so that's all that confusion has been his programming kind of warring with itself. And then he finally snaps out of it and remembers he's like, oh, I orchestrated this this whole time. And I just told myself to forget
1: exactly and it's because he like you know has slightly come around to dolores's point of view that like humanity is not worth saving except then he seems to change his mind again before the episode's over but like for a time you know he regretted killing dolores she was right the humans are assholes so he brings her back in charlotte's body in order to like trojan horse her off the island he does it with the help of ghost ford who it turns out really is a ghost this time that was a twist that i just like didn't really care for it just felt extra and i didn't need it you know um and scrambled his own brain and that's how he wound up on the beach um and uh dolores has also changed her mind and she has decided to give the host their happily ever after and she puts teddy uh in the valley
3: okay so can we talk about that for a second not not, not necessarily the teddy thing but the other thing so um when this big when this big reveal happens and the, the tech is like wait shit the 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 thing is a lot bigger than it's supposed to be what yeah. that is is because they've tricked him into what like that's,
1: beaming beaming the digital Eden to some place
3: where they can't find it whatever where they that means.
1: can't
0: find it <laughs> and we
3: see like literal physical lasers like firing into the sky.
0: Yeah. yes <laughs> so I,
3: that was a little confusing but I kind of yeah. also feel like that was the show being like um hey look at that bird and then like when we're looking away they just like toss this huge storyline like into the trash because they're like done with it and don't you know didn't really know how to satisfy it like they're like uh yeah we just kicked the thing into space like don't worry it's fine they're fine uh
1: yeah so she's locked it um she, she she said she had one more soul to take to the new world, so I'm guessing she's talking about Teddy there. Uh, she locks it so that they can't ever unlock it. She says that's it, it's done. There's no passage between their world and ours. James Marsden's not coming back. Don't interview him on the off season. He's not coming back. Basically, it felt like uh, was what she was saying there. Um, but one last soul to carry to the new world. See, well, I thought uh, I read
3: that as her take talking about that she was going to take bernard's brain
1: i mean she did take his brain with her when she went but like because that's isn't that the
3: new world she's referring to
1: well i think there's like two new worlds right because she she says their world so she right. uses the word world to describe where they're going i also wasn't sure if she was talking about because i think it's because she says one because when we find out later she's actually taking several yeah brain balls with her to the new world um so i think in this case i have one last to yeah take to the new yeah, world i think she's true. talking about teddy okay you're right um and then later but, there's that
3: montage where she's talking about how like but that, i think it's a repeat of something she said earlier in the season about like how not everyone would make it and like right. good people would be left behind and it shows teddy and there's kind of a wistful thing to that where she like knows that she she sent him off to the right fate for him um yeah
1: and she says the better, I think she calls him like the flash study when she says the best parts of us we yeah. have to leave the best parts of us behind. She's yeah. talking about Teddy and, and, and once again, like Marzen really sells these, like I really, like I said, I didn't like love everything that happened with his suicide, the last episode, but I did love that look he gave when he was just waking up in the flashback. And I think he once again did like really good silent acting of like, Oh, she saved me. And now I get to frolic in yeah. like this CGI Valley. Forever. Finally know the Great. touch of a man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and then we get we get uh do we want to call her like uh charloris i don't know uh, we get- I, I,
3: well you called her that in the show notes so yeah that's what we're calling her.
1: <laughs> okay charloris uh makes her escape from the beach um here's a few things that i love that were confirmed by this episode charloris One,
3: was my favorite disco singer so i i think it works it's a nice call, you know <laughs> to that 70s queen of disco charloris
1: charloris um she's i think she's got a a new album dropping this summer, <laughs> oh, good oh uh, but the um Two things that were confirmed. Uh, one, uh, Logan definitely did die of a heroin overdose. This is a big question people had, but I, you know, I think that's definitely very clear from this episode. Yeah. And then number two, this, this theory that I hate that came back this season, which is that, uh, Charlotte is, is Charlie. Uh, Bernard's son, Arnold's son. It makes no sense, but I think people liked it because of, um, hey, there's a black actor and there's a black actress. Maybe they're related. And, and two, two more to their credit, Charlie and Charlotte are like similar names-ish. Uh, that seems to be off the table. This is not Arnold's. I mean, that theory never made sense, but uh, like, this feels like emphatically that's not true. Well, um, and
3: also, yeah. And it turns out that Charlotte was more of a vessel than she was necessarily right. a standalone character who we were supposed to invest a lot of interest in. It was really her physical form was what, in a weird way, we we're supposed to have taken from her.
1: Correct. And was and, taken from her. <laughs> um, I take your body with me when I go. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we see Charlotte evacuating from the beach and then we get like one. Well, there's there's the craziest twist of all is still coming, but there's one last crazy twist, which seems to me to be a reveal that uh, Stubbs is a host. Is that your your read on this exchange?
3: Oh, that's interesting because I actually my read on it was that years ago Liam and Chris Hemsworth built a robot older brother, and that's what this was a nod to. You know that that Luke Hemsworth is in fact uh, the actor, not the character. Um. <laughs> But no, I, I actually did think that, uh, I, I, on, on second viewing, I was like, oh, he's definitely a robot. Cause it's not 100% confirmed, right?
1: Um, it's not 100% confirmed. Here's a few things that he says that made me go, like, on the second time I watched it, I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch this. Uh, he says, uh, like, he says he was hired so many years ago, I can barely remember it. And he refers to his core drive. Uh, and he like
3: and, emphasizes and, core drive you could say he like he's you know oh, he
1: like he's positively winking yeah, at her when he yeah, says yeah, it and then yeah. he says i'm gonna stick to the role that ford gave me i was really adamant last season that stubbs was not a host but now i feel like i was wrong about that one because um i think and he says this thing he's like my job is to protect all the like well at the very least stubbs Fucking knows that's Dolores, and he's letting her go at the very least. Yeah. Like if he's human or robot, he knows that's Dolores, and he's letting her go. And he or says, he knows
3: it's a host in general. A host, yeah.
1: yeah. And he says, you know, my job was to protect every single um host in the park. So I, you're not my job anymore. Once you leave, that's fine. The reason why I kind of think I like this idea of him being like a host, um, is then if you circle back to the beginning, and I, I think he, I. Th- I think this is a decision they made in the off season. I don't think he was in season one, but if you make him a host in season two, then like the way in which he rushes in to protect Bernard in the premiere this season is like, you know, maybe he's like a yeah. little, a little watchdog that Ford left behind to protect Bernard, even as Bernard has scrambled his brain. Do yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that's, that's sort of my thought on, on that front, but I would have to watch it all again and watch, watch all the stub scenes again. Uh, I wouldn't mind it. I like this Hemsworth a lot. So, uh, you mentioned as, as Dolores gives this monologue, she says, we left the best of us behind uh, us. Um, and the worst of us too, or some of the worst of us survive. And there you get the man in black in the tent. Yeah. and you're So like, that's at
3: least present tense.
1: That's present tense.
3: He did make it out of whatever, you know, thing he got into in that instance. But, like...
1: He made it out. Yeah. His hand is wounded. So, like, that happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um We see... Uh, we see that as she's gone, Charloris, <laughs> Disco Queen Charloris <laughs> yeah. has um has pulled w- pulled off what Nedry and Jurassic Park never could do, which is get the embryos off the island. She's got five
3: Dodge. Five, we've got Dodge in here.
1: <laughs> she's got five pearls in her bag.
0: uh, uh,
1: a, a, uh <laughs> a little string of pearls. And um just like in Battlestar Galactica, I think we're gonna get to guess. Who they might be. Uh, we know Bernard's one of them, right? Bernard's so Bern- one of
3: them. Whoever is in,
1: in Charlotte, yeah. At
3: the end. And I have questions about that, but we'll, we'll get to that in a mm-hmm. second. Um, and then three others potentially. Right. If not more. Um, uh-huh. yeah. So that'll, that's, that is setting up another season. Even though, again, I still was feeling at this point like this is, feels like a series finale. Where do they go from here? But because they're wrapping up so much, they're wrapping up the whole park narrative.
1: Yeah, I mean, like... You can't
3: uh, go back to the park after this
1: if we see the park again, it better be in the way far future, which is sort of what we get at the end of this episode. But so, you know, as it turns out, Ford left, you know, Arnold's house, behind, back to the house where we were before. He left a printer there. Well, <laughs> and, as nice a, and as a friend of mine <laughs> put it, uh, made sure there was plenty of toner and ink <laughs> so that they <laughs> yep. could print some bodies. And she, pr- she builds, uh, Bernard. And I, I think the thing with, with the, with the Charlotte body, uh, is like, why waste all that toner and ink on printing a new body when you can just pop a pearl, whatever pearl it may be, uh, into uh, the Charlotte body you already have? Yeah, and the Charlotte
3: body is really useful to have considering her connection to the company.
1: Right, exactly. So we don't know who's in there, but some, you know, we see Dolores and we see Charlotte. So yeah. no longer Charloris, now two different entities. I don't know who it would be because, like, it wouldn't be Angela, she blew up. Uh, it wouldn't be Clementine, she was a zombie. So I don't know, like, who, Dolores knows or cares about that she would put in a Charlotte body. You know what I mean? Her dad? Yeah. Her dad? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, but so, you know, uh, we get that and we get this whole like, um, setup of like a Magneto versus Professor X or, you know, Mr. Glass versus Bruce Willis and Unbreakable sort of clash of spy versus spy, whatever of like, of, Dolores saying she built Bernard to be her enemy, but that she would need him in order to ensure the survival of the species.
3: Right, right. Um, which is an interesting thing to set up for going forward. It it makes the show, you know, even though they've drastically cut down the number of characters, I mean, they've essentially reduced the show to, well, you know, counting Charlotte, I guess, like four characters.
1: I would say Dolores, Bernard, Charlotte, I. Feel oh we we forgot to mention that Sylvester and Felix we did already but like Sylvester and Felix are looking at Mave they're the given like they're, right?
3: they're, the, this tech is like salvage what you can of, yeah, any, of but, anybody
1: uh, so I would put Maeve on the list I would say Mave and Sylvester and Felix I guess uh Dolores Bernard Charlotte and William. And yeah.
3: So, okay. It's not that, that reduced. But.
1: No, but it's majorly reduced. Cause like Elsie's gone, you know, like uh Teddy's gone, you know, Hector's gone. armistice is gone. Like those people, people yeah. they could come back, but they feel gone because you're right that it just feels like, I feel like whatever time jump we see at the end of this episode, and we'll get to that in a second, like uh, they could in theory take the whole show there because who, who is surviving Bernard and Charlotte and uh, Dolores are, they're immortal. Right. So we could hop like a hundred years in the future and all these immortal beings are a hundred years into their plan of whatever their plan is, you know?
3: Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of crazy thing is that even though the show reduced its cast of characters pretty su- significantly in this episode, the show feels like it's suddenly, even though again, there is a series finale air about it, it's more like, it's more like, okay, this series ended and now a different show is starting, yeah. you know, because like in the same way that a lot of people said critically of the first season that like the, it, sh- I think actually there was like maybe a joke about it in an SNL skit or something, but uh, about how Westworld season one should have started with the season finale.
1: You yeah. Know. And I mean, I think even the creator, I think even, um, Evan Rachel Wood said something like that was all a prequel <laughs> to what the right. show is now or something like that. And, and now you're right. It feels like even more so that those two whole seasons were a prequel. It's like Dollhouse. To what the show. You
3: know, season yeah. two, where it was like, you're like, oh, this is what the show's about.
1: Exactly. And, um, so, and, and Shannon Woodward said a similar thing about <laughs> the whole Ed Harris thing that basically like a- everything that we've seen up until now has been like his first experience in the park. Which is the foundation for building the thing that we see at the end. Because so we get this post credit. you know, uh, Bernard walks out of the house.
3: This wonderful uh, Radiohead song is playing.
1: Beautiful Radiohead. Co-
3: Codex, uh, in parentheses, basement music. He's in a basement. It's, uh, you know. Yeah.
1: Is it, wait, is that, I thought you, when you wrote that to me, I thought you were just saying, like, this is the music no. that's playing in the basement. It's called Codex. Legit. Parentheses yeah. basement. Right.
3: Uh huh. Yeah. And it's really evocative. And, <laughs> it's but beautiful. it has this kind of softness to it, too. And mm-hmm. like it, the time of day seems to be sort of like the afternoon. And so there's this kind of like restfulness or not restfulness, but like sort of peace to the scene, even though all this stuff is now kind of churning into being. Um, and it's a really, I think, effective, bit of you know of, of artistry for this episode this this f- for these final scenes um and then you know this whole thing has been about the door and it ends of course with bernard walking through a door uh which is the biggest door that any of these people have walked through i mean we've had hosts in the real world we saw that early in this season you know whether they're pretending to be waiters and party guests or whatever but this is a self-aware host yeah stepping out and and we see bernard's even though he's you know has this new mission to uh thwart you know his beloved uh doris like uh he he smiles
1: yeah you know yeah it's a you're right that it's very like golden hour afternoony, but it also like it feels like a dawn it's a dawn right like this is a new day a new world he's stepping into it i really like what jeffrey jeffrey wright does with that moment i think it's a really beautiful moment and then we get the what the fuck post-credits
3: <laughs> yeah and this i'm just so confused by so it's it it. i hadn't really what now what were the indicators to you that it was far in the future just that, that the all the language about how long he'd been there
1: um i th- i believe he's i believe it is the forge even though it looks nothing like the forge it's the forge with all the water drained out of it mm-hmm. um, and there's dust everywhere in a way that just looks like decrepit and derelict to me. like that was my first indication. He walks in and when I saw the dust, I was like, this is the future, isn't it? And then, yes, Emily shows up and he goes, "Oh, fuck, I'm already in it, aren't I? Like He thinks yeah, I'm in
3: the thing. I thought that was yeah. so funny.
1: He's like, he, he thinks he's in the forge and she's like, and, and but there's no letterbox. So I'm inclined mm-hmm. to believe he's not. And she's like, no, William, this isn't a simulation. This is like, this is, you know, the real world or whatever. Uh, I'm inclined to believe her for whatever reason. Um And she's like, do you know where you are? He's like, I'm, I'm in the park. I'm in my fucking park. <laughs> so I really love Ed Harris in this scene. Yeah. And, and then she goes, and how long have you been here? And he goes, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and yeah, so to me, that means that he's been like, uh, you know, and then they sit down in, in this, uh, sort of, uh, derelict version of the round room and they do a fidelity test. And, um, you know, so, so this person that we're watching here is human consciousness in a host body or, you know, in a, in a robot body. Okay. Uh, and my interpretation is that he's been doing this loop for a very long time. And I think the reason he's been doing it, it, it ties back to the whole, uh bin Bond's uh Jim Dellos thing, which is like I think he's looping in the hopes that one time when he loops he won't have killed his daughter.
3: But that means and- that he that 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 he's that he's been killing a host forever. Well, or original Emily wasn't a host. But in no, every uh, subsequent thing he's been doing since he still has.
1: Right. That he's trying to break his programming, but like no matter what he does, no matter what choice he makes, he winds up killing his daughter. And that's and why they,
3: you think that, that they chose Logan to be the librarian.
1: I think so, because then yeah. you've got Emily, Emily here as like his librarian, basically. Right. right? right you know, right, right, so, right, right. so like the, the children counterpart sort of thing. And, and, and so yeah, so it's like, it's anchored on this one, this, this is the defining moment of William's life is okay. killing his daughter
3: and let's let's game out of theory here okay so the, right. it it is it is far in the future dolores is out there doing whatever she's doing the park is still operational but maybe no one knows about this room or this 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 forge except for him
1: is the park operational or is it just his own personal like track you know what i mean like, are there other guests or is it just like him and other hosts, like, role playing over and over again to try to get a different outcome?
0: Oh,
3: I see what you mean. But, the, so, but something is happening above ground. Yes. Right. I think so. And he's just, he's installed a host that looks like his daughter. Yes. To test him. Yes. Okay. So this is That's him doing it. Yeah.
1: I think this is him. He has created a version of himself, a host version of himself. And is trying to figure out a way in which he's not a bad person. But guess what? You're always a bad person no matter what you do, William. You suck. So. Right. right. um, uh, according to Shannon Woodward, he was not a host at anything that we saw before this episode. She was like, he was digging around in his arm for a port and he didn't find it. He's not a host. So like, it's not like we've been watching or, or, or even a human consciousness in a host body. It's not like we've been watching human consciousness in a host body this whole season. It's like the only time that he's that is in this scene and maybe in the elevator scene right before it would be the question. Um, yeah. And so it seems like elaborate and self-indulgent to have created this whole park just to try to prove to yourself that you're not a bad dude, but that also seems like exactly something William would do to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. So that's my theory, um, as, as to what's going on there. Um, but I know that uh, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I question the wisdom of doing something so, um, confusing in a post credit stinger, so monumental and confusing in a post credit stinger in your season. Though we'll get people talking in the off season, people will be debating. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who will be like, oh, he was a host the whole time. I just don't think he was, but that might just be me stubbornly, like needing to have been right about the fact that he wasn't. I don't (laughs) know. I mean, I also, yeah, I kind
3: of saw it as, you know, now that you're kind of talking this through with me, I I now kind of see it as like, It maybe even isn't that consequential to what comes next in season three. It's maybe more just like, oh, and look at this. He's still fucking at it. Like, isn't that depressing? Like, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And like he got he you know, he's he was destined to be stuck in this thing forever, whether it was in, in in real human form or in host form or some weird combination of the two. Like William is forever trapped in this place.
1: Well, and it's, it's sort of like, this is what the real Emily said to him is like, you know, he, he, he told Juliet when she was right before she killed herself, like, um, that he belonged there. He belongs to a different world, the park, you know, and then, and then, uh, Emily is like, you're so delusional. Like you think you're, you think everyone's a host, you've, you've lost yourself, your delusion. He you want there's a part of him wants to be a host. And so he just made himself a host. He made himself a host and he's living out his little host life over and over and over again, uh, killing his daughter every time. And it's horrible. It's his hell. He's made a hell for himself, and he lives in it. So,
3: but then yeah. when does he know? So he, but but when he kills his daughter, every time it's new. He doesn't realize I, he's done it before.
1: I think he doesn't realize until he steps into the forest. And then he's
3: like, "Oh fuck, yeah."
1: And and Emily's like, "Hey, you're back. Great, cool. Let's yeah. do this part again." You know, so mm-hmm. that's what I think. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Know, that makes sense. We'll for more on this twist we go to series executive producer and the director of this episode fred toy just as a heads up the audio on my end for this interview is a little funky so i do apologize for that but the content is worth it i promise you
4: and if you are watching this video either i'm dead or i'm in a very 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 bad situation she said oh
1: my god i can hear gunshots i can hear men outside where are they what have they done to them Are they dead? Are they not dead?
0: There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh.
1: It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away?
0: There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere.
4: Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is
1: available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: We are joined today by the director of the finale, Fred Toy. Fred, thank you so much for chatting with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
1: This was a crazy, ambitious episode that you were a part of a 90-minute runtime about like five different plot lines that you're juggling. Um, what were some of the challenges of doing so many lo- locations, so many different characters? What is that like for you as a
2: director? Well, it was, uh, you know, at first daunting when I read the script. I remember having this sort of like cold, dead stare, you know, <laughs> that went on, like thousand-mile stare that went on for about a week and I remember Jonah sort of like sticking his hand in front of my face going like are you there you know <laughs> because I was definitely kind of like I remember we had the first couple of meetings and I was kind of like you know you know uh you know uh, it took it took I would say it took me about a week before I started to kind of you know uh, bring ideas and then you know and then as these things do you know the the uh the excitement level raised and I and I once I once I figured out kind of in my head how we were gonna figure it figure how to do it, then I was able to um, I was really st- starting to burst with ideas. The biggest challenges I think were logistics obviously because of all the varying locations and all of the places that uh, we had to go in order to film it and and I would say, you know primarily the fact that we didn't do it all in one big chunk you know generally speaking when you're doing television. You know, you're shooting an episode all in one, you know, uh, period of time. And we did it over the course of several months. So we had begun shooting scenes, you know, months earlier. So like, and I think we started shooting scenes even you know, in, in August and September for episode 10, um, with an incomplete script at that point. I think that was the most difficult part of kind of juggling all the various timelines and also the fact that, you know, we we sort of were, you know, a lot of new things were coming forward. As
0: well. Yeah, it was
1: funny. I was re-watching the uh, trailer that they put out for, I think it was the Super Bowl, and there's so much footage from your episode in that trailer, so much oh, yeah. footage in there. I was
0: <laughs> like, oh,
1: they had that already it's sort amazing. of in the can uh, for that. But what you know, can you recall what are some of the earliest things that you filmed uh, for that episode.
2: Yeah, so so the the very um, I would say the very first um, and most challenging. Actually, you know, uh, thinking about what the hardest stuff to shoot was. Some of it was some of the earliest stuff, and um, it was in it was in the the Frank Lloyd Wright house uh, because we had Anthony Hopkins, and he was only available for a certain period of time. So we needed to film his material as soon as possible for, for, uh, for most of the episodes. So that material was sort of combined together, including the 210 material. And so while we were doing scenes for 210, but also for other episodes, Jonah, you know, this was, this was, I mean, uh, let me make it super clear. Like this was a group effort. There were many, many scenes that were directed um, by Jonah in this episode and by Richard Lewis. And, uh, and we, we, you know, there were a lot of things that we had to kind of put together, much to the chagrin of the, of the DGA who <laughs> crowned something. But it was, it was really the only way we could get through it. And so when we were in that house, which is the Millard house, um, the, uh, La Miniatura, um, most of the stuff that happens post-leaving um, uh, you know, when they leave, and and you see Tessa Thompson arrive, all of that stuff was done simultaneously with scenes that we were doing with Anthony Hopkins upstairs. And it's a very small house. I mean, relatively speaking, in Los Angeles, it's like a, I want to say about a three thousand square foot house. So downstairs we had a unit shooting while we were, you know, and we had put that dunk tank in there and everything. And so I was downstairs doing that stuff, and I was running back and forth. And he was talking to me about his ideas. I was talking to him about my ideas, and I would you know, run upstairs and say, you got to see Tony doing this, you know, like, okay, let's do that. And then we ran downstairs and we go look at a shot that he was shooting downstairs. So it was quite, it was quite, a, um, there's something I think that Jonah loves about his early days as a filmmaker when he first started, even before working with his brother. And, and for me as well, like when I started in, you know, student films and things like that, that this gorilla. Yeah. shooting style is quite fun, you know, and it's the idea that you don't have this massive unit with 300 people standing around looking for you for answers, but you're just grabbing a camera and you're go shooting stuff. So that was kind of how we started it was like and these are film cameras, so it's a little bit bigger of a deal. Uh it takes a little bit more, you know, to do the old style, but but we were running back and forth, you know, literally guerrilla filmmaking that, you know, those first few um, sequences. And the miniature was some of the first stuff, and then um, we had gone to the beach after that, uh, which is that later scene with Ford and Bernard, uh, which was shot in two pieces. Actually, we did a, we did it on the beach, and then we went back later and we shot some stuff um, for for Jeffrey in December.
1: We, um, you know, I've interviewed so many Westworld actors who seem like they're done with the show, but I think we've learned at this point, you know, never say never with Westworld, anyone can come back at any time. But there's still, there was a a good number of of deaths in this episode. If an actor feels... (laughs) Just a a few. If an actor feels like they're saying goodbye to the show, whether or not, you know, Lisa, Lisa Joy, and Jonah decide to bring them back in season three as, as a host or something like that, how emotional does that get for an actor to film perhaps their last scene?
2: You know, interesting. Interestingly, um, I've, I've, I've experienced on other shows and other, other um, programs that I've worked on and films where it's the final days. In this particular case, because of, I think, what you just said, and that is that never say never and never know where it's going to go, that in a way, it didn't feel like, oh, I'm leaving the series, if that were the case for any one of the actors in particular. But more that like we we achieved this thing that I cannot believe we achieved. I have never like i I heard it time and time again from different actors, and obviously crew members. I have never experienced something like this in my entire career. And so I think the sense of accomplishment in a way overshadowed any sort of real kind of, oh my God, oh shit, I'm out of the top, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of um, <laughs> emotionality. So not to say that it wasn't playing under the surface. I mean, there are certainly a number of characters that I can think of in, in, in some of these final scenes that were definitely uh, kind of like felt the weight of it. But I do think that you have a little bit of a, you know, kind of one foot out the door when it comes to it, you know, a Nolan, um, you know, project uh, in terms of whether it's really going to happen or not, especially seeing Anthony Hopkins roll back in. Right, exactly. In episode
1: six. Whoever knows at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I was so sure he was done all throughout the season. We've, we've had these uh, two different aspect ratios that have helped anchor almost three planes of existence in this, because you've got the forge, you've got the quote unquote real world, which is the Valley. And then you've got this like Val, this technicolor Valley beyond sort of uh setup, which is its own thing. Can you talk about some of the, uh, you know, any other visual cues or styles
2: in season one, I had done episodes, um, six and seven, uh, which is really episode six that turned into episode eight that turned into seven with parts of eight. I'm not going to complicate this anymore, but <laughs> it was two episodes <laughs> and, um, and you know, it seemed, it seemed to me going into it that there, you know, that our influences were Stanley Kubrick. For the sort of science fiction element, and also the kind of the objectivity of that, and 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 the austere, cold nature of that style of filmmaking, plus sort of like natural Western genre, John Ford um, style, you know, Fred Zinneman uh, kind of filmmaking, and so you know that was the approach that I had taken in the first season, and there was this, there was a specific choice not to use handheld for anything, and I'm sure. It, you know who follow this kind of thing, know that we, you know, we, we did or Jonah had chosen to use handheld in one shot, and that was Maeve making the choice to get off the train at the end of season one to go get her daughter. And so, going into season two, um, the, that discussion, you know, came up again at the very beginning about like how do we want to use handheld, and I think that that opened up some channels that ultimately, like in the introduction in the early parts of the season of the handheld photography to sort of indicate to the audience that these were choices that were being made, which is effectively thematically what's going on in season two is the idea of free will and choice. And so that became a stylistic element throughout um, the season. And I I had felt as though, you know, having, I was a producer on season two. So, you know, having been involved with every episode, my feeling going into the 10th episode is that we had established that we had, we had told the audience fairly clearly kind of what was happening internally to the characters. And I think you do now having watched the whole season myself, like with finished episodes, I think you do ask yourself what free will really means, especially when you're watching Dolores's character about, is this a programmed uh, reaction or is this something that's, you know, uh, her decision and, and also with Bernard, as you see it through his confusion, you know, in addition to that, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to give it a, you know a sense of confidence that you felt as though the hand of the storyteller was coming in and grabbing you and saying this is where we're going. I didn't want the audience to feel any sense of insecurity that there wasn't a story that was very clearly planned out and being told and I think in some ways when you get really messy with the camera and you start blocking scenes in very complicated ways where that you know it's complicated enough like let the audience know that we we know this in a in a very assured way. Like we know what story we're telling and we're telling you the exact story we want to tell you. So we're going to bring you through that story in a very clean and linear way. So you'll notice scenes that are incredibly complicated, like in Forge. It's very simple blocking photography for the most part. And that's done by design because I don't want to confuse the audience with further further visual information when what you really want to do is concentrate and focus on the character and the moment.
1: Are you talking about um, like inside, inside the forge with with Logan, sort of giving us yeah. so much well, information? Everything,
2: everything specifically. Yeah. yeah, everything specifically. But also, like for example, in the scenes of Dolores and Bernard in in the forge, in the in the flooded facility downstairs yeah. and things like that, where it's it quite complicated. What's happening with
0: Time you know what's lines. happening with
2: Hale and yeah. and all that? But I think yeah. I think you don't want to feel a sense of like insecurity about that the storytellers are trying to mess with you. I think you want to feel confident.
1: Um, My favorite scene in, in the episode is this final confrontation between Logan and Jim Dellas that happens inside the forge. There's just something about, I don't know. I I rewatched it like four times. There's something about what Ben and Peter are both doing in that scene. That just really got me. And I was sort of like, I could watch a whole episode just of this. Um, What was that like to film? Did Ben and uh, Peter just come like ready to play with all of their, their actorly bags packed or or what was that?
2: Jonah filmed that scene and I was there. And um, that scene was very much um, the two actors had come Very prepared. I think that an opportunity for an actor like Ben to take something like that on, where he'd been playing this, you know, ass in the first season, and this very complicated character that in the pieces that he had played in the second season, you know, we they they gave him an incredible amount of layers in in both seasons. But to see his character play out the way that it did in this season was was a wonderful opportunity for him. I think the writers did a fantastic job of writing for him in that. In, in 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 this season, those pieces. But you know, another thing that I feel about you know scenes like that, emotional scenes between a father and a son, their last scene together, the scene right before he overdoses, like all of that, is notice if you look at the scene again, the sparseness of the words. It's not overwritten. It's very simple. There's really only about five or six lines, I think, but they're played. with such calculation and such specificity. And that's, again, another tribute to the writers, that they're able to say, we know they're going to bring it. We don't need to overstate. All we have to do is just we just have to put them there and give them these moments, you know? No, there's not, there wasn't a director standing there like, no, no, more tears.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kicking Ben Bars (laughs) between takes to make him cry. No, um, I the, you're, you're right that it's spare, but it's also, um, it's also memorable, so that when you hear Ben hit, uh, when you hear Logan hit, I'm all the way down now. You remember, it, or I remember that from episode four, and then that just gives episode four, like you know Jim Delos repeating like his son's last words to him or whatever in episode four, so much more weight.
2: And, um, oh, just really, oh, here. incredibly yeah. so, and also, and also the fact that I w- one thing I loved about that moment was that it w- there wasn't finality in that scene. You notice that even to the last moment before. James steps away. He's still looking for approval from his father. He's still looking for that one inkling of confirmation. He never lets it go. And that's the part of the beauty of that performance. When he says that, he says he says, I'm all the way down now. But there's not finality to it. You know, there's a there's an open book. Yeah. He's waiting. He's waiting for his father to give him back what he's asking for, what he's asked for his entire life, and has never gotten.
1: Um, the other performance I want to talk about specifically in this episode and then, you know, the shockwaves it sends back throughout the entire season is Tessa Thompson when you find out that Tessa Thompson has been doing like kind of an Evan Rachel Wood impression or Evan or Dolores's white mm-hmm. almost impression the whole season. Yeah. And it's, it sort of blows your mind open about, I don't know, I, I, I had been, I had this like itch in my brain about what was going on with Charlotte the whole season. I had no, I mean, you guys got me. I did not, I did not see this coming, but like,
0: um, <laughs>
1: you totally got me, but, um, but I still was like, what is going on with Tessa Thompson? Like, I don't understand what's happening with the Charlotte character in this modern timeline. It doesn't, like, quite line up to, like, what I know Tessa Thompson can do. And then when I found out, like, that's what she was doing, I was like, oh, man, mind blown. So
2: <laughs> I was could
1: talk about any of,
2: you know, yeah. It was very funny because when, you know, when she, she was super excited, Tessa, about this idea, and I think she initially was sort of like, I got to do something, you know, and she, we talked about it, and I know she talked about it with Joan and Lisa quite a bit, and then she talked about it with Evan, and ultimately decided on, you know, the muscle version of it, which is that you know um, you're going to have to put on, and if there's little subtle things that happen, we're not going to notice them until a second viewing, yeah. and I would, I want to say my favorite moment of all of them, honestly, because you know there's you know Dolores is sort of white in the season. You know, there's a coldness to it, and there's there are moments of warmth that that come through for Tessa. I'm not speaking of Dolores; that's a whole other amazing performance this season. Evan did a fantastic job, um, but in Tessa's performance, like when you realize that she she's Dolores, that she's Hale as we called it. Um, my favorite moment was the scene on the beach with with um, with Stubbs. Yeah, and so he stops her before she gets on the boat. And he, you know, and he, there's this moment where he says, he says, uh, um, it's, you can call it my core drive. And they use this little moment of hers where she gives, I mean, we're talking the smallest of small sort of wry smiles. Yeah. That was totally Evan, like totally, like you could see it. It was like, it was a totally different yeah. Tessa than we'd ever seen before. Like, and, the, and and that whole scene, the way she plays that scene is so clever because she knows you no know, it starts out with her putting her hand on in the purse grabbing the gun. Yeah. Right? She's ready to shoot him, right? She's ready to shoot her way out, right? if she has to. And here comes, you know, here comes Stubbs knowing exactly what's going on here, right? And this and this and this scene and this scene by the way was written like the night before.
1: Okay. All that right. Scene was written. So I've question That scene
2: was written the night before. I have a question about that. I love yeah. this
1: scene. I love I love Luke Hemsworth and the show I think he's so great uh, is yeah. this a Stubbs is a host reveal is that what we're watching in this exchange?
2: yeah yes I, I believe so okay that's my opinion I, that's my opinion too but I uh, you don't know. take my opinion I didn't write it <laughs> all
1: right I, I won't hold you to it uh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, I believe I believe that and yeah. and 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 I thought that that was and I thought that the way he played that was really clever especially considering, Again, another like production fun moment was that, that that it was that the specificity of how that scene was written was Jonah had written it the day before because it was he had this idea of like this of how to execute that scene to kind of and and how do you how do you again kudos to to, to him and Lisa on executing a scene that had a lot of words but did not exactly say you're still asking me that question is he a host right has a lot of words and a lot of interchanges and a lot of moments, but doesn't quite say what's happening. And it's an incredible sort of interplay of, of wordsmithing that he does in that scene. And I think that, and I think that, it, um, you know, he, I think he, as he does sometimes, I think he woke up with a light bulb and the day before we shot it and kind of recon- reconceived it. And Luke was on a plane he was in Kentucky or someplace. Yes. I don't remember where he was. He, he, he was supposed to be coming in the night before. Uh-huh. We were at Lake Piru shooting that. Um, we needed him at 7 a.m. for that scene uh, and in Lake Piru, which is not close to Los Angeles International Airport. And he didn't fly until, I want to say, 9 in the morning from where he was coming from. So he didn't get to us until like about, I think we got him about noon. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to rush through it. Um, and I had to come up with a whole bunch of other stuff to shoot. Uh, before he showed up, but he showed up prepared and he was like, he's like, I just read this city Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. I, I love that. I love that scene. Cause he's like, he's winking without winking when he says core drive, it's like a practically uh, a Hemsworth wink there. So
2: yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, so it's fantastic. And also I've never seen him play a scene like that. That was the other thing too, is like when it's, when you did the first take of it, I came up to him and I was like, dude, that was insane. And he's like, he's like, oh, what do you mean, mate? And I'm like, <laughs> you've never played a scene like that in this series before. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, this is the same to do it. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So it's like, again, one of those things where it's like, step away, let him do it. You know,
1: in that, in that scene, we like right after that, we see that, uh, you're, you're calling her. Hey, Um, is that what you're calling yeah. her? I think we, we called her, we recorded the episode of the podcast already. We were calling her Charloris, which sounds like a little bit more like a disco star, oh. I think, but I like her Loris. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, that she's got these pearls in her bag, which I was sort of equating to because I always like to talk about Jurassic Park whenever I can. Like Nedry getting the embryos off the island,
2: basically. Like, yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> she doesn't get attacked by a dinosaur on the way, though.
1: Right. So. She makes it. Um, and it seems to be like, uh, potentially, I mean, you know, I, I know you can't obviously exactly speak to this, but it seems like potentially setting up a mystery for season three of, like, who are those pearls? Who are we going to see? Are they going to be in bodies you recognize, or are they going to be someone else. Are we talking about Mystery Cylons of Battlestar Galactica? Like, What's going to happen?
2: Yeah, 100% uh, um, totally uh, tee up for Season
1: 3. I just wanted to ask you, grill you a little bit about this, uh, this post-credit stinger, which made me go what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and watch it uh, three more times. Um, so, are we dealing with a massive time jump here?
2: Is that what's happening? It's another timeline, yes. Yeah. Okay. It's another, t- it's another, t- it's complete timeline. But I can say, it's in reality.
1: Right. There's no. She, it's, it's real. She very clearly says this is no. not a simulation. There's no letterboxing, so this is real. But it's a different. That's right. Reality or timeline? Okay.
2: Um, yeah, and and Ed, you know, and Ed, you know, the way that, um, you know, it's very specific that we return to the facility that we've seen, and it's destroyed. Now and you know, and it's covered with sand, and you know, it looks like a lot of time has passed, and all that. That's that's all you know, part of establishing that that uh, timeline,
1: right? Because we're back in the like the forge antechamber sort of thing, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. all
2: right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then but
1: does that mean, um, <laughs> thank you for helping me get my yarn well straight. Does that mean then that earlier in the episode, when he goes into the elevator and you have this sort of uh Fake out where you expect the elevator doors to open. He's going to be there confronting yeah. uh, Bernard. Is that also taking place in a different uh, Correct. timeline?
2: Okay. Yes, it is.
1: So it's seated back a little bit earlier in the episode.
2: If you look at when he wakes up, he gets his hand blown off. I always took it, and maybe Jonah would say something different, but I always took it as that moment when he wakes up after his hand being blown off is when the storytelling switches timelines. But you could ask yourself, you could ask yourself how how much of the simulation or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How much of the test is real or not real that you're watching in the episode? Because you could ask yourself earlier if there was another sort of pivotal moment that's, that switched the storytelling from the simulate, from the reality to the simulation, but ultimately that that doesn't matter because as, as, uh, as it stated very clearly in the episode, he's doomed to repeat. Right. So, um, so I, I think that it's 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 honestly it's interpretation as to when you think that storytelling switches from the reality in timeline two and to the reality in timeline three or whatever that we want to call it.
1: Yeah, I was going back and forth if like everything we saw in this episode with Ed Harris was reality three, as you just so helpfully named it. Um, you could say that. Yeah. Okay, and then
2: you could say that. I mean, I, th- I would say I would call the, uh, you know, the choice in episode nine to be kind of the pivotal choice for his character, right. obviously. Right.
1: So the, yeah. So, so the connection that I'm making, uh, and I'm so delighted to ta- be talking to you about this connection I'm making is with that, like Logan Jim Delos stuff that we get in this episode is like Jim Delos inside the cradle, keeps looping back to this mo- final moment that he has with Logan. And it, Feels like then Ed Harris's character is looping back to this decision he made with his daughter Emily,
2: Um, and 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 the fallout of that. The fallout of
1: that, and like
2: that, it comes right back to that. It it always as 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 Logan in in as the system states. It all comes back to this one moment. This is the
1: choice. This is the defining moment of Jim Delos's life. This is the defining moment of William's that's life. Is killing his daughter. That's right. And that's why we have. Yeah. The, and then it makes sense to me thematically why we would have Katya's, Katya as like the person running the fidelity test, similar to why we would have a Logan in
2: Logan. The yeah. That's right.
1: All right. Well. That's right. Good. <laughs> Then I then I do understand but it. it.
2: But, but it is. But it is. But I, I can say you know very clearly it is up to interpretation Shit. about when you would say the simulation, you know, kicks in and when it doesn't, to me in my head, I I had always made the, made the notion that it was the waking up because it seemed like the most clear place that you can make that choice. But, you know, because I think it does open up a can of worms when you start to think about it. effectively what's happening in the whole episode. If you said, as of episode nine, you're watching the the future simulation, I would say that, it makes it a little complicated in terms of when you start to kind of parse out the Dolores of it and the Jeffrey of it, and he's never met Arnold, like all of that. So I, I that one, I, I, you know, I leave to interpretation, honestly, I, and I, I, I am positive that Joan and Lisa have a very specific idea about one. About that one. <laughs> I know at one point
1: I was like tracking bullet holes on Dolores. I was like, is this where, where are her bullet holes? This is what happens to me when I watch your show. Um, so yeah. And, uh, and so then that's, that's a tragic ending. I mean, not necessarily definitive ending, but a tragic,
2: a, a beautifully executed by Ed, an amazing, yes. amazing performance. And, and you know, the moment where she asks him, you know, what did you expect to find here? And I just always felt like that moment was like the moment we've been waiting for, for, 20 hours, you know, yeah. 22 hours of storytelling was to hear him tell you, um, uh, what his intent was, you know, and that's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it's so beautifully executed by him, you know what I mean? Because he plays this duality of shame, acceptance and, and, um, confusion about, you know, effectively how he came, how he came here, how he got here. Because I, because when he gets off the elevator and he's like, I'm in the thing, aren't I? obviously he had assumed that, that that he was going to become, you know, a virtual simulation. And then, and then, and, and so I think that it threw him for a loop to understand that there's more to it than that. Right. You know? And so I think that, that to play that, to play the confusion and, and yet resolve to his fate at the same time is just a, just a testament to Ed's fantastic performance. And, you know, I think that, I think that scene will, will, fuck with
1: people yeah no absolutely um you know so William <laughs> William is uh as I'm sure was the intention William is doomed to repeat this terrible you know I mean th- I keep using quantum leap uh terminology for this I don't know if you were a quantum leap fan but it's like uh he would hop, yeah. he would hop back in time hoping each time the next leap would be would leap home like hoping each time like the simulation doesn't end with him killing his daughter but every time it does like no matter what because yeah. that's his nature right and that's who he is Oh, heavy stuff. Poor William. Um, uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This is amazing. And
2: my pleasure. um, My pleasure. I'm, 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 and thank you for tracking the show as you have and, and putting it out there for folks. And I think that there's a lot to be parsed out, you know, when everybody gets a chance to see this episode and I think it takes some digesting. I can tell you that the week that I took just from reading the script is probably the minimum amount of time it will take for people to digest what's you know what's presented. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, yeah, there we go. So any like overall thoughts on the season that you want to share?
3: Yeah, I thought it was really terrific. You know, I I there were moments where I was like lost or well, not many when I was bored. Um but I think that you know, I'm not someone who really like grapples with science fiction all that often Um where we're sort of certainly like hard sci-fi like because I find it a little daunting or whatever but like the, I feel like this show made it so accessible in a way that like Doll and intriguing in a way that like Dollhouse did you know all of these questions of like self and you know, the, the far reaching implications this could have not just for a person, but for a society and for a world and like, and, and, and these kind of zooms into the future and all this stuff. Like I find some, something about this season's mix of the sort of spiritual and the, you know, sort of more philosophical metaphysical stuff. I thought that they did it really well while also making the show, you know, titillating and gory and entertaining and, and, you know, all that. I think it's like, I think it's a pretty good show.
1: I think it's, I think it is at times a phenomenal genius, great show. Yeah. And I think we saw like it's, it achieved some heights of greatness this season with episodes like Mai, Kiksuya, and Riddle of the Sphinx, I think, or just really incredible episodes of television. And I, I just hope it takes some of those lessons with it, uh, my brain with it when it goes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right.
3: I hope it takes its <laughs> own brain with it. Yeah
1: into season 3 and does more of that. I would like to see more of that, more ambitious uh you know, I know they don't necessarily have like the park uh, excuse to play around in different cultures and stuff like that necessarily. If if the park narrative is done, which I kind of feel like it should be, but like um I I don't know. I I just I hope that Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy have faith in the fact that when they tell sometimes when they tell a linear story it's better than their twisty gotcha reveal stories and that they're very good at telling some of these like really soulful, uh, impactful, poetic stories. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know what that would look like in season three, which is potentially future world. That's, I guess, what season three is, but uh yeah. I, I would, I would like to see that from them if I, if I can.
3: And I think even though it didn't have it didn't make much logistical sense. Like the moment when Akichita is reunited with his lost love, um, had a nice emotional ring to it, as did Maeve sacrificing herself. So this show doesn't net, doesn't need to just be hard and, you know, creepy and, you know, uh, probing. It can also have a softer, it can have a roundness to it. And, and I hope that they kind of embrace that too. Um, in whatever the, th- you know, and so do we think that the third season is really just going to take place in out in the world, which is a whole different thing, like in, in a whole new aesthetic? And I'm just very curious to see how that's going to work.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't, um, I don't know for certain. Um, there's a part of me that I don't like. I don't know any of this, but like, what if HBO is like, okay, Westworld, we love what you're doing. You've got a good audience, but maybe not like the massive Game of Thrones audience that, that like, you know, so maybe you need to rein in the budget a little bit. So maybe you need to like have a slightly smaller cast and um smaller scope. And not film in fucking
3: Monument Valley with like helicopter shots every two (laughs) seconds. Yeah. Yeah yeah and so like a like 100 different extras in 100 different costumes and
1: exactly yeah so like let's let's just make this a real world story uh you know with we still got robots still got cylons but uh you know it takes place in not in monument valley exactly that's, that's like that's, something i was wondering about you know if it's yeah monetary. i think that's
3: a reasonable theory and i think that that's fascinating in terms of like you know i kept keep mentioning it but like what if dollhouse had gotten that season three that the unaired epitaph one episode had kind of introduced like that would have been a really, really compelling show. Right. And, and maybe, you know, maybe this will be that maybe it will be Caprica and we'll be bored.
0: Right. <laughs> but, uh,
3: you know, let's hope for, for something else. Um, but you know, either way I had a really nice time watching a season and talking about it with you.
1: I agree, and we will be back, as we said, in July, first week of July, uh, for Sharp Objects. Uh, so keep keep your eyes peeled for that one. Um, but in the meantime, Richard, I hope you will take my brain with you when you go.
3: Yeah, I'll see. You, I don't know where I'll see you. The valley beyond the uh, the real world. I don't know where the hell we're headed, but
1: real world Boston, I think, is where we're going. Oh so, gosh, <laughs> I'll see you there.
3: All right, see you there.
1: Bye.
0: These violent delights
2: and violent Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab.
0: And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade.
2: The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large.
0: Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.